Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast, as always. We appreciate you joining us each and every week. Hope everybody is having a wonderful holiday season. And if you haven't finished all of your shopping yet for the holidays, do yourself a favor. Go to our website, hazardground.com, and click on the Sponsors tab at the top of the homepage and check out some of the great sponsors that we have. Click on any of the sponsor banners, and when you make a purchase of any of those companies through our website, not only are you helping out the podcast tremendously and keeping it ad-free, but... You're helping out veterans all across the country. Plus, not only do we have great advertisers selling gear and everything else, but we also got a great book list. Again, on our website, HazardGround.com, click on the list tab, and you'll see our book and film list. You'll find books by Hazard Ground guests, as well as some of the films that our guests were involved with or based on or even played a role in, and films outright inspired us and this podcast. So, obviously... It's a great way to do some holiday shopping. Speaking of holiday shopping, of course, our promotion with Amazon. You can go to our website, HazardGround.com, and click on that Amazon banner right there at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab, and you can do your normal Amazon shopping for anything, holidays, for your own self, business, whatever it may be. We'll get a percentage of what you spend, and then we will kick that right back to some of the great charities that you guys have heard featured here on the Hazard Ground, so you can actually help out veterans all across the country just by going to our website and then clicking on the Amazon banner and doing your holiday shopping that way. Don't forget to send in guest suggestions. We love hearing from you guys. So if there is a guest in particular you want to hear about or a story that you know of, send us an email, producer at hazardground.com. Finally, leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. We always love to read them, and we get back to you guys on many of those. Here's a great review we got last week by NJI. He says, It just happened to stumble upon this podcast one day while looking for something to listen to in the evening. The guests on this program have had careers and experiences that are truly intriguing. I've listened to about 10 podcasts so far, and I really enjoy the exchange that goes on between the host and the guest. If you're wondering where to start and you want to get a good feel for the power of the stories on this podcast, just listen to the episode with David S. Williams, Part 1 and 2. I was truly amazed at what I was hearing. Thank you so much for the review. And the background on the story, David S. Williams, he was one of the first POWs in the Iraq War. If you know the Jessica Lynch story, uh, Private Jessica Lynch, David S. Williams is tied into that story. And he was in captivity for over three weeks before he was rescued by American forces, a truly inspiring and amazing story. All that out of the way, let's get on to this week's episode. Joining us this week is a 20-year retiree of the United States Air Force. He retired at the rank of Senior Master Sergeant. He had 19 non-combatant tours, but multiple deployments to Afghanistan and Iraq, where he was a combat photographer and photojournalist. And he was also awarded a Purple Heart and a Bronze Star for Valor for his actions in Afghanistan. He is Kevin Wallace joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Kevin, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. An incredible story of what happened to you while you were in Afghanistan. Uh, we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, as I mentioned, you were awarded a Purple Heart and a Bronze Star for Valor for your actions in Afghanistan. But start back at the beginning. Uh, how and why did you get into the Air Force? Well, um, so unlike a lot of the um, the service members uh, that I wound up working with, um, who I consider heroes and, and heroic, you know, brave men, poster 
posters of resiliency, if you will. Um, I, I joined the Air Force for probably what you may see as the stereotypical reason. I did not want to go to war. Um, I, I was, I had very, very high ASAP scores. I mean, I maxed out all of across the board, all of them, 99s. Um, but I didn't have the financial ability or really the support to be able to go to college. So um, I saw uh, joining the military uh, for four years as a way for me to get a college education. Yeah, that's how I got I here. Mentioned. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to spend four years in the military, I may as well, may as well go in the, in the um, seemingly easiest branch and, and, and um, I, I know it sounds horrible, you know, after after all the people I've worked beside saying that, um, even when I say it out loud, it kind of has, you know, leaves a bad ring in my ear. But on it, and honestly, that's why I came in. I wanted to do four years, uh, get the college benefits um, and uh, and leave. No, well, but Kevin, I mean, listen, one, you signed up in a pre 9-11 era, correct? When you initially enlisted? Correct. OK, so I did the same thing. And that was my intent through ROTC. When I did it, it was the easiest way for me to pay to college. The school I really wanted to go to was a was a private school that was super expensive. And this was the easiest way for me to pay for college because I didn't come from a well-to-do family that, that could do it. And I thought the same exact thing when I get in. Just let me do my four years and get the hell out of here because I had no, no desire to really make a career out of this. Now, 20 years later, I still wear a uniform and I'm extremely blessed and happy. But from that standpoint, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. Especially back then. It's one thing if you signed up after 9-11 and went, yeah, I yeah. really don't want to go to combat. I mean, well, then what, what are you doing? What are you raising your right hand for? But back then, when we were signing up, you and I, in, in the mid to late 90s, Clinton was downsizing the military, right? We were in total prosperity as far as our economy was concerned. We had peace all over the world. We had cleared the Gulf War. I mean, things couldn't have been any rosier. And for people like you yeah. and me who just wanted to get a college education, this was a means to an end. I don't think there's anything wrong with, with, with feeling that way at all. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and the very end of my first enlistment, 9-11 um, happened, and that was a game changer for me. I, um, You know, college, any, everything else in my life could wait. There was um, a lot of really bad people out there that we had to deal with. So my reasons um, by my second enlistment were completely different. Um, but yeah, initially that's that's what I came in for, and and like probably most people, nine eleven was a was a massive game game changer. Yeah, no, absolutely. Time. But before we get to that, did you sign up to be a photojournalist and, and a photographer? No, I actually. Um, so my first job in the Air Force um, was a calibration technician in layman's term. I, I work in a physics laboratory. I mean, you can't get more uh, more safe and more stable than working in a climate controlled 73 plus or minus two degree building without windows working in a physics laboratory. It really was the epitome of a safe and stable job. And at the same time, if college didn't work out, it was a very, that that job paid very well on the outside. Yeah. I was going to um, say a uh, nerd alert. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's it. Nerd alert. Physics lab for crying out loud. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, um, you know, it, Sometime um, in the beginning of um, the Iraq War, when we were already in Afghanistan and in Iraq, the Air Force and the Navy both started helping out the Army and Marine Corps a lot with their jobs, um, you know, augmenting and things. And the Air Force was looking internally at jobs that if you weren't flying or loading bombs or, you know, directly putting aircraft in the air to protect the ground troops or to fly sorties, well, maybe this is something we could contract out. So the job I was doing um, was one of those jobs. So I was uh, force retrained out of it. Um, and uh, I wound up 
you know, being moved into what now I consider the best job in the, in the Air Force, if not in the DOD. Um, I thought being a photographer exposed me to <clears throat> people from all walks of life across all five main branches. And um, it was just a, a hell of a ride. All right. Go back to 9-11. Where were you? What do you remember? So funny, not a funny story, but if there is a funny 9-11 story, I think this is it. I was in, in Okinawa, Japan. And uh, we were hit with a super typhoon that, that came through um, the day prior. Then, you know, it went out and it, it turned a little bit and came over and hit us again. So already saturated. We were, the island was out of power. Um, so um, on 9-12, when power started coming up, um, and this was, you know, no one had cell phones back then. There was, there was recalls. We were all getting recalled to base um, on, on our landlines. And uh, I lived off, off base and everything. And, I still had no idea what was going on. So it was very surreal when I, we finally got power and I started seeing, you know, the, the planes hitting the, 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 the twin towers and, and Pentagon and things like that. It was, um, it was, um, I mean, it was surreal for everybody, but the fact that I didn't know what happened for another day to day and a half was, um, I don't know. It was, it was, it was just unthinkable to me. <laughs> now, Kevin, you, at the time you were still doing your physics nerd thing, right? I was. I was okay. still a super nerd. So did you think when this went off, you know, we talked to a lot of people about 9-11. They said, I knew right then we were going to war. Did you think you were going to war at that time? So in my, my job, in my MOS, no. But I wanted out of it for that reason. Um, and I, I started going to see um, what we call the, the MPF, the Military Personnel Flatter Admin people. Um, I was bothering them daily, you know, how do I retrain, what – what jobs? I mean, I was looking at TACP. I was looking at any job that could get me closer. And I, and I considered just leaving the Air Force and going over to the Army. Um, the Army was taking a lot of people at the time. And, and I could even potentially get a warrant position flying. Um, and I thought really hard about that. And then this other opportunity came along um, to be a, a combat photographer. And then I would you know, be able to work in a joint environment and directly support the warfighter. I, I think at the time, I still pictured Ernie Pyle and some of my heroes, the people who run around with a camera, but not a rifle. I didn't really understand that I would be part of an infantry team and things like that. Um, what, but, um, that's, that's how it worked out. So I don't know. Life just seemed to have a, have a course pre-planned for me and I was just thrust into it. And, um, yeah, it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. All right. But now, so you had to leave Okinawa to go back to school at that point in time to learn how to become a photographer, right? Correct. Okay, so you head back to Fort Meade, Maryland, home of Dinfos, correct? Absolutely, yep. Yeah, I've been there. Um, so uh, how long does that take? Um, <clears throat> it took me, well, it took me a little bit longer um, because of, um, you know, being overseas and, and, and DROS and things like that, um, time that I had to leave the island. So I wound up going to Fort Meade a couple months early and uh, working in a chaplain's office as his um I guess, assistant, you know, I wasn't a trained chapel assistant, but, you know, I, I answered the phone and things like that, waiting for my slot at Denfos. So I wound up spending, I think, about six months at Fort Meade. Um, the school itself was um, closer to four, four mm -hmm. months. But So when you graduate that, um, you know, what happens to you in Afghanistan doesn't happen for another 10 years in 2011. So there's a lot of time to cover. And as I mentioned, you did a whole bunch of non-combatant tours, but what did that entail, uh, and how quickly do you, after graduating from Dinfos and you're now a combat photographer, how quickly do you start spinning up where you, you head out all over the world? So 
I show up at my first base um, at a very turbulent time um, for, for um, you know, non-combat reasons, but um, essentially a C-5 aircraft crashed on my base while I was still at, at Dinfo. So um, the public affairs operation there, and, and at that time, the public affairs officer was off station, the base commander was off station, all the key people were gone. So, um, I just on the weekend, that weekend went up and, you know, Hey, I'm coming here in a couple months. Uh, this person, how can I help? And I wound up, um, working with the vice wing commander, um, going, uh, to some engagements in town where he was giving speeches and, um, pretty much from day one, while I was still at Denver, actually everything I was learning there, I was executing real world. Um, and, you know, fast forward about a month and I get to that, uh, Dover, Air Force Base, and at the time, Dover still had the operations for the mortuary, so it was a um, it was a, it was a trying place to be. We had a lot of soldiers and, and a lot of Marines and service members coming back, um, you know, coming back in boxes and transfer cases. So it was a it was a tough tough spot to be. Um, and not that I wanted out of it, but I wanted to go. I wanted to be in the fight, so I was I was going to my supervisor daily, like, hey. Are there any deployments? You know, sign me up. And, and in the Air Force, there's a process. Um, regardless of your rank, um, you're, a, you're a certain level. They will, they will call it a three, five, seven, nine. But I'm a three level. I'm right out of school. You know, I can't deploy yet because I can't do self-sustain, do my job, regardless of, of the fact that I just um, put on E6. So um, I fast-tracked as the absolute fastest possible to get my next level, which is a five level, which then qualified me. And I was in Afghanistan. I think about seven months after arriving on station. So I got upgraded as fast as humanly possible, volunteered for the first deployment and uh, went out with the 82nd for um, a couple of months and they were swapped out by the 101st. So um, spent about nine months um, in uh, 07 and 08 uh, in Afghanistan in the, in, in the East. Um, and during that deployment, I also um, went down and worked with the Polish army. So Task Force Kurahi, was running Eastern Afghanistan at the time under General Slosher from the Combined Joint Task Force 101 out of Fort Campbell. Um, and another um, aspect of uh, of that coalition was an entire province was 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 kind of being controlled by the Polish Army, um, and they didn't really invest in the you know non-infantry capability support type roles that that photography fell under. Um, so I got the honor to go down and, and, and work with the Polish for a couple months, which was a very wide, uh, eye-opening experience. But they were um, they were tough fighters, man. Those, those Polish soldiers were um, were not scared of a fight. Um, so it was kind of cool to see. Um, so I, yeah, almost immediately after I got to my first base, I was I was overseas. Okay, so this is 2007 when you first hit Afghanistan for the first time, correct? Correct. Tell me about the whole sort of environment when you get there. I mean, you had been itching to get overseas. You'd been itching to get to a deployment. When you set foot in Afghanistan, what are your first thoughts? And is this what you thought you were asking for? Yes. Um, yes and no. When I first arrived in Af- Afghanistan, um, I was assigned to a brigade combat team, which they were just, it was a new new concept at that time. Mm-hmm. Um so there was a little bit of dysfunction way above my level, um, but I could see it. You know, I could see that spilt over in the ranks. Um, and I was at a massive, massive base called Bagram Airfield. Um, so I mean, within this base, 
there's a perimeters within perimeters within perimeters. It was um, about as safe as you're going to get in a country like Afghanistan. Um, so I still didn't feel completely, um, you know, participating in the fight. I was doing, um, you know, I, I was photographing events on base, but it was, you know, helicopters taken off from flight line with, you know, with um, air assault soldiers and uh, pararescue men and different, you know, aspects of operations that happened on, on Bagram. Um, but I wasn't on those planes with and those birds with them. I wasn't on those helicopters. Convoys going out of the gate every day, you know, foot patrol or, or mounted, but I wasn't on any of them. So I was kind of frustrated. Um, so uh, I just kept pushing and pushing and then, uh, you know, got my first outside the wire mission was with um, a PSYOPs mission uh, where we were riding around in, in Humvees, um, essentially broadcasting out of the Humvee in, um, in Pashto, um, we were picking a fight. Uh, it was something along the lines of Taliban or, or you know, dickless bastards, you know, things, things of that nature. Um, uh, and I just heard this, you know, foreign, you know, tongue coming out of these loudspeakers. And I was really surprised when I asked uh, one of the PSYOPs guys in the, in the truck with me, this Marine captain I was sitting next to, like, what, what's going on? Like, what, what are they saying? And he told me, I was like, wow. So we're actively out here, you know, picking a fight. But, um, I think in their mission, you know, the, the way the Afghan people are, they're very tribal and very, um, um, almost if you imagine like a pack of wolves, if you, if you're, if someone challenges you to a fight and you don't respond, well, then you lose a massive amount of face. And in their society, power, particularly men, power is everything. So by us riding around picking a fight, if they don't come out and fight, well, then we disempower them in the eyes of the community, which is very important. Um, I didn't really understand PSYOP's mission, but that one mission really um, opened my eyes to a lot of the things that IL and, and PSYOPs and these other units were doing. It was pretty um, pretty powerful stuff. Um, we did not get in a fight that day. Um, I did get in, into some um, some ticks during that deployment, but not, not that day, not that first mission. Interesting the way uh, you say we were picking a fight. I'm curious as to... The emotional response to that, I mean, it seems like we were there to defend, not instigate. Now, that may be drawing a fine line, but to the civilians listening to this, I'm sure they're thinking the same thing. Well, we're not there to pick a fight. We're there to help people. Yeah. Yeah, well, that ultimately, that is why we're there, but it's more complex than that. Um, if, if, if you're going to help the people, well, then you have to remove these extremely brutal oppressive um you know thugs really out of power they you, you know wouldn't allow um girls uh to go to school um you know or or leave you know females couldn't really leave the house without a male escort or family member um just the amount of oppression and brutality under taliban rule um, um these people had to be taken out of power so um while it may seem on the surface that picking a fight is not why we're there, if that takes some of the power base away from these truly evil, you know, monsters, well then, um, then I think the, the, it's a necessary, it's a necessary step that we had to take as a, as a coalition. Um, we were there for the right reasons, but, um, sometimes, um, sometimes you have to, you have to shake the hornet's nest a little bit. Okay. So you didn't get into, any engagements that day, but you did on that deployment. Uh, for somebody who signed up uh, not wanting to go to combat and somebody who chose 
another field being combat camera or, you know, photojournalism, your first priority is to shoot with a camera, not shoot with a gun. When you get in these first engagements, what is your thought process? How are you handling it? Are you regretting it? Is this a mistake? What are you thinking? So, um, so in that, yeah, in that, in that deployment, um, the fights never, never escalated so much that, um, that I was really conflicted on, on what tool to use. As you mentioned, the camera is my, is my primary mission and my primary tool. Um, but I did return fire with my rifle on that deployment. And then a subsequent Afghan deployment, um, oftentimes it, it was the rifle. Um, but even in the most intense firefights, um, I would still drop the rifle, pick up the camera and, um, and, and make sure that I was, you know, executing the job that I was there for. Um, and sometimes that didn't sit right with, with a soldier or a Marine that sees in the middle of a, of a shit storm, you know, this guy over here taking photos, it, it, it seems absurd from their perspective, but if I'm not doing that, then I, I may as well not be on that team. There's another, um, infantryman or, or you mentioned a cat scout earlier. I, I work with scouts too. Um, or another Marine or somebody that could be there in my place. Um, I'm taking up a seat, uh, or I'm taking up, um, a person on a team on, a, and, um, and I'm, and I feel like I need to be doing my job as well as be a rifleman. Does that make sense? No, it does. I mean, again, uh, having worked in the in the public affairs field, I I guess the the aptitude that some people in this field operate with varies based off of how comfortable they are with a weapon and how much they realize they are their life is at risk. Um, I, I would tell you from personal yeah. experience. There were some of my folks who did that job that I would have never wanted to be in that spot, not only for their own safety, but the safety of the troops around them, because I just didn't think that they were capable enough of doing it. So I'm just kind of curious for you, was that something that you always took pride in and being able to be skilled with your weapon and being able to handle those situations? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I one of the biggest things I took pride in. Um, I mean, I'm not a huge guy. I'm, I'm 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 quite short, but I always maxed out, like maxed out my fitness test every year. Um, and my primary crafts, you know, being being the camera and stuff, I committed myself to learning it so much that it's second nature. Because when the you know, the shit hits the fan, as it were, um, I don't have time to be thinking about apertures and shutter speeds and you know things, you know using a camera that should be so ingrained in me that I could use the majority of my mental capacity because we all have limited bandwidth. Um, and, and, you know, these, these infantry guys and, and special forces and stuff, they train day in and day out for that situation. So to them, it's not taking their entire bandwidth to, 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 to exchange fire with the Taliban or, or whatever the situation is. Um, it's what they've trained for. Um, me on the other hand, that takes a lot of my bandwidth to to tackle that situation. So I you know my job well enough that it, it, it's it's just second nature to me, and I could focus on on what is um, what is foreign. Um, and, and eventually, you know, I, I was in a lot of fights, and eventually it becomes more second nature. But I still am a photographer, right? Like I go back to a base somewhere, and I'm a photographer. I don't go back to a base where I'm continually training in tactics and stuff. So um, I have to really focus. I hadn't, I had past tense. I'm not in that world anymore, but I had to really focus (laughs) 
on those situations because I don't want to be a liability. And like you, I saw a lot of people that I was like, man, if this guy or, or, or gal ever, ever deploys, God help whatever team they're with. And I never wanted to be that person. You know, I mean, even, even, even when wounded, um, I, I wanted to carry my own weight and, and I wanted to, to walk and, and or run off this, you know, battlefield as we, um, as we, you know, the fight dies down. I never wanted to be a burden to anyone. And, uh, and I do take a lot of pride in, in some of the very tough situations I was in that I didn't burden anyone else that I was able to contribute. I was able to actually help them, um, suppress a fight and win a fight. Um, and because that's not, you know, like I said, that's not what I enlisted to do. Um, but it's something I quickly embraced when it was necessary. Well, and to that end, let me just clarify again for some of the civilians listening who, kind of don't understand uh, the constructs of the military, whether it's the Army or the Air Force. And I, I don't say anything I said about some people I wouldn't put in the fight as a pejorative. I say that as a matter of everybody in this organization, being the military itself, has a different skill set. And some people are better at certain things than others, and some people are more mentally adept at certain situations than others. As leaders, it's our job to find out what those strengths and weaknesses are of each individual and make sure that we're using them to the best of our capacity. So when I say that I wouldn't have put one of my soldiers in a situation where they may have been in combat, because as you just stated, Kevin, not only was it a detriment to them, but it would have been a detriment to the people around them had they come into contact. And so I would be setting everybody up for failure, and I would also not be doing my job as a leader in figuring out the best skill set and the best place to use these people. That doesn't mean that they're bad soldiers, bad airmen. It doesn't mean that they necessarily are, are afraid or anything like that. It just means that some people are better equipped to handle certain situations than others. Now, as we've learned in combat, and through many of the guests we've had on the podcast, you get thrust into certain situations where there's nothing you can prepare for, and you just sort of have to react. That happens to some people, happens to a lot of people in the nature of combat. But I just kind of wanted to to give that sort of little background on it, um, not that we're taking shots at anybody or saying, again, they're bad at their jobs or they're bad you know, military members, service members, whatever it may be. Some people just have different skill sets than others, and I think that's fair. I think that's very fair. Yeah, everybody serves a purpose, and and every everybody isn't the pointy edge of the spear you know there's there's a there's a big long spear and yeah every, absolutely i mean the, the cook and the mail clerk have is just as important job as anybody else because people got to eat and people want their mail it just because they're not out there pulling the trigger doesn't mean that they aren't in the fight correct all right let's fast forward uh to your deployment in uh 2011 um this is the one where ultimately uh you were wounded on when does that deployment begin how do you get there and kind of what is the uh, the mission set for you on this one? Is it any different than any of the others? So that that deployment, um, it, it was um, I was I was tasked with a deployment initially to Africa um, to support special operations and and some Navy operations there. I was really excited. Um, lost the asking last minute. Um, and then I was just calling, um, my major command, um, Hey, is there anything out there? Like I'm ready to go. Um, so I went to work, um, at the time the, the air force, there was really short in, um, senior NCOs and company grade officers. So the top of the enlisted tier and, um, and, and some of the off uh, the junior officers, um, the Air Force was very short in my career field in, the, in those, and that came down to um, when the Air Force re- reorganized how they were doing deployments, they came up with these bands, and my career field was in what's called the E-band, so basically the A-band deploys on, on a 
some certain ratio. The E is the ones that are there. It's it's a it's a one to one. You can pretty much expect to be gone half the time, and that doesn't include the build up training. So really, you're gone seventy, you know, eighty percent of your time in the military. You can bet that you're going to be deployed. So people who are retirement eligible in the listed ranks started retiring quickly. Um, the ones that you know were old and didn't want that life, and then some of the younger um, younger people out of college were thinking, well, this isn't what I what I signed up for. Probably a lot like me, they came in the Air Force with a with, with an idea, um, and it wasn't panning out to be that idea. So they and 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 like we mentioned earlier, you know, I think it's fair to say everyone serves their purpose, but some people probably don't need to be in the military. So these people started jumping ship and that left a void in these ranks. So as a tech sergeant, which is an E6, I went to fill a, a captain's role at um, wow. the ISAF um, press desk. Essentially, it wasn't a, a photography role at all. I was working at a press desk. Well, I show up in the um, in the uh, the Army colonel that's running it, um, you know, He's he just can't understand why did the Air Force send send me an E six? I needed an O three. So um I didn't wind up doing that job, not not even a day. I, I stayed in a transient tent as they looked for something for me to do. Um and um there was a void in the Italian army. So the Italian are the it was really a coalition. There were some Spaniards and um um Albanians in there as well, but this coalition um um combat camera unit in RC West in, in the Western Afghanistan, uh, because of the nature of the services in, in that region, um, their combat camera team wasn't allowed, uh, to do missions outside the wire. So they would fob hop, they would get in these helicopters or convoys and they would go from location to location doing things on base, but they couldn't get into the fight. Um, so there was a need for, um, you know, like a Brit or an American or, or a country that was more able by our rules engagement to be in the fight. Um, so they wound up getting three, three Americans, uh, myself and two others out there. Um, and, uh, and from there, um, there was a, I mean, I, I really enjoyed the work I was doing with the Italians. We did, we did some good stuff, some not so good stuff as well, but, um, but there was a need in this very remote, um, area in the west um Bagdis province is way up in the mountains uh Balamagab district there was some cav scouts out there um just just they were in a just a brutal brutal situation it's probably the worst place on the planet I've ever seen it was constantly kinetic um and there was just a small team of 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 scouts and forward observers and medics out there working hand in hand with a MARSOC and MARSOC was quite new at the time um, so they were had some mentorship from an ODA at different times. So you had special forces, guys. So basically, ODA, you had Green Berets, you had the Marine Corps Special Operations that was just mm-hmm. stood up, so later team, and the scouts and um, four observers and a couple of JTACs and um, and medics essentially um, out in out in um, living living in just these filthy in, environments on the front lines, no real supply chain. Um, eating um, most of the time what, what food you could barter with from the Afghans. Um, just at this very, you know, very remote front line, sometimes trench warf- warfare situation, you know, not even at some places, HESCO barriers, not even, you know, proper um, defenses dropped in. So digging trenches with E-tools and fighting from, from you know, foxholes was, was the situation out there. And it was really a... Um, 
something I embraced right away. Um, my first trip out there, uh, um, I saw like these specialists and, you know, lance corporals and people, these very, very junior people that were out here fighting day in and day out. And, um, and nobody knew they existed. And I, I really felt compelled to be part of these, these people's space, right. And tell, tell, try to tell the world, um, about some of the heroes you'd see out there. Um, because, you know, I, at the time, General Petraeus was running, um, I, you know, Mm -hmm. IJC, he was running, running ISAF, uh, and, um, there's a hundred photographers that follow him around. It's great when he, you know, when he talks about coin or whatever he has going on, but, I didn't feel like that was my calling. I wouldn't, I wanted to tell the story of the people on the front lines fighting. So, um, so I talked to, um, talked to, you know, my chain of command there, there was an Italian major who ran the operation there and he let, um, my, the two of us, myself and, um, petty officer first class, uh, John Pearl, um, go out there and, uh, and pretty much in bed with this other group of people. So the deployment was weird in that I was meant to go work at a press desk, wound up working at a NATO combat camera unit, then wound up working with this cab team and, and MARSOC and ODAs. Um, and, and another one of the situations where then you, you're sitting there and you're thinking like, well, how the hell did I get here? This is, you know, <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was, it was intense, but, um, man, the, the things you see some young people do out there is just, incredible um you know i'll spend the the rest of my life um not not so much telling my story but telling the story of these people which is my um i guess my underlying reason for for getting on here i know i need to tell tell you guys my story but i i would i would love to just talk about these people because you know these 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 scouts and medics and forward observers and and special forces guys are just incredible um, well, to that end, I mean, let, let's spend a minute there real quick, just because I think it's worthwhile. One, you know, we've had other both civilian and military, uh, you know, combat camera folks uh, on the show before. And I, I asked the question, how do you know what to shoot and how do you know what doesn't need to be shot? Because some people will tell you that there are certain things that you just don't need to capture certain moments, whether it's somebody bleeding mm-hmm. out and dying or whatever it is. I mean, for you, what was that sort of uh, line like? So for me, um, and and this may sound like a cop out, but a luxury of being enlisted, um, and I had opportunities to commission along the way, but I loved what I was doing. So to me, it wasn't that wasn't my path. But a luxury in being enlisted, there's there's always officers above you that are the release authority. So I just shoot everything and what images I think. PSYOPs and IO and things may want intel, I send to them. Things I think public affairs may want, I send to them. So I shoot everything and then I I, I blast out to who I think may want this imagery because effectively John and I are out there working on our own. There is no officer. There is no um, just two E6s just kind of willy-nilly on our own hanging out in this really around these, you know, these just heroic men. So, um, so I just shot everything and sent it where I thought it belonged and whether an officer at public affairs released it to the media or not, well, that, that's on them. That's not really my, my prerogative. Um, so, um, yeah, so I just shot everything. <laughs> All right. Give me an example of one of the things that you saw when you talk about the guys that you work with, the, the heroes that you work with that stays with you. 
Um, okay, yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you about this this young guy from California, specialist Kellen West, um, and uh, and I could play something. Um, it's actually um, I think you'll be able to hear the audio, but I could play a moment when um, so there's 12 of us out here, and we're in a a brutal fight, three day fight. Um, it, there was some capture kill um, elements of this mission and there was also some key leader engagement in trying to convince um this one particular village that was a taliban haven to stop supporting the taliban and start supporting the um the republic of, of afghanistan um and uh is it a republic well, anyway to start supporting the government of afghanistan um and uh it, it, the mission went went south very quick and three days of just just intense i mean one particular day, extremely intense fighting. Um, a, um, if you think like a lone survivor type situation, it really was that. Um, Twelve of us pinned down in a set of ruins, 100 to 150 Taliban on all sides, taking fire from all sides, seriously low on ammunition. Um, and in all of this, we're getting hit with RPGs, rocket-propelled grenades, um, back to back and for the civilians you know listening it's the it's the thing you see on movies where there's like a pipe on the shoulder that fires a rocket um anyway we're getting hit with those back to back and just you know a plethora of heavy machine gun and medium machine gun fire um and and i'm seeing heroics all around me and um i I guess suppose i suppose i i did some brave things that day too but um, you know, as these RPGs are hitting it, we're fighting from these dilapidated mud ruins. These, these, you know, it may have once been a house, a mud house out there, but it's, it, there's no roof. It's, you know, the walls are anywhere between, you know, some places two feet high, other places five. So it's just this, 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 this set of ruins that we reinforced as best as we could with the, what sandbags we had. Um, but basically we, got, we dug down with e-tools to get as low as we could. Um, but uh, I think it was the fourth RPG that hit on my position, just took down the wall right in front of us. What 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 um, you know cover we had. So now we're we're fighting wide open. Another RPG comes straight in. Um, I'm I'm actually taking <laughs> taking photograph, not firing my rifle as as this happens, but whizzes right over my shoulder. I had a I had a little beard going on, but it burnt my beard as it went by, and it, and it hit. Um, that's how close it was to my face, and it hit in the ground five feet behind me. Um, and when it did, it, it peppered, well, threw me off my feet. I went headfirst um, into what was left of those mud runes and, and was knocked out briefly. Um, but uh, a couple of the scouts in there, um, uh, private PFC, Ben Bradley was hit with shrapnel in his leg and Sergeant Shepard, another scout took some through the um, arm. And there was a, a, a sailor with us, a petty officer, or second class, I think it was, but um, a guy named Ryan uh, Lee, who was a dog handler, and he had his canine. Um, the dog's name was Valdo. But Valdo took a ton of shrapnel, like he had a, a hole about the size of a Pepsi can through his intestine. I think he, one of his paws was blown off, half of his you know, his tail was blown off, you know, a big chunk of his, his rear end was gone, just shrapnel all over him. So... Um, um, well, I'll, I'll play a quick audio because I had from my helmet cam, or actually this is from um, from yeah Jeff Sergeant Shepard. He had a camera, um, a point and shoot camera that was kind of on the ground, so it, mm-hmm. it didn't really capture video, but it captured audio of this. Well, Kevin, before um, before you play it real quick, I just want to clarify everybody: this is actually your story. Yes, this is what happened to you on April third, two thousand eleven. So I just wanted to clarify for the audience because. 
I'm, yes. you know, I had asked about something that you saw with other people. I didn't know you were going to tell your specific story, but it, that's okay. That's fine. I just wanted to make sure the audience understands this is what happened to you the day that you were wounded as well. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. And, and, and this is leading up. I am telling my story, but I want to talk about, I, I, I really want to talk about killing less medic. After okay. This, no, I go ahead. Go ahead. Hearing this. Okay. So I'll play this real quick here for you. <laughs> I heard I'm hit. Could you hear that? I heard I'm hit. I don't know if everybody else, I heard I'm hit. I'm hit. The guy screaming. Yeah. 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 Um, Do you want me to replay it to see if. No, no, no. I mean, I'm just go ahead and tell tell everybody what happened. Yeah. So, so the RPG hit, um, Jeff screaming for a medic. Here's Kellen. um, And he comes across um, a good distance to get to us. And there's just machine gun rounds exploding everywhere. More RPGs hitting. It's um, it's it's the um, I, I guess the Hollywood version of hell, um, but it's real. Um, so here's this here's this young guy, and and he comes up and and he he puts a tourniquet on Jeff. You know he patches the humans up. You know fairly quickly. We've got to get back in the fight though. There's no. Um, I mean, this is relentless. These the, the Taliban was really laying it to us. Um, they wanted to hold this piece of land that we. We wanted to remove the, the power base in, in, from them in this area, so they're putting up a fight. Um, and and then Kellen gets to Valdo, this dog, and he's looking at it. And you know, this is a, um, a a medic. This isn't a nurse or a doctor, or certainly not a veterinarian. You know, he doesn't know the anatomy of a dog, but he just goes to work. He's on his knees. Um, um, Ryan is holding his dog because the dog's just freaking out. Um, he's kind of just pinning it down, if you will. And here's Kellen pulling quick clot string, you know, out of his medic kit and stuffing it in the intestine and in there, you know, pinching off arteries that, you know, this dog's bleeding out um, with those. I don't know what you call the little tool that's like, um, it's like tweezers, but they clamp down. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know the name, but he's in there clamping off arteries, you know. Um, and, and I'm looking at it and it was like a surreal moment because I still have, you know, machine gun rounds popping all around me. I'm, you know, I've shrapnel in my neck and my back and, um, and I'm, you know, laying, laying down cover fire. And then I'm looking back and I'm like thinking like, Jesus Christ, you know, the, you know, to me, it was just like, how did he know what to do? I wouldn't know what to do with this dog. I guess you just look for bleeding and stop it. But those are the moments, you know, like, did Kellen know when when he graduated high school, probably just a couple of years earlier, that he would be, you know, doing immediate, you know, battlefield trauma care to a to a dog, and then ultimately saving his dog's life? Um, so those are those are what I mean. These these stories of just 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 brilliant stories of of, of, of heroics all around me, you know, everywhere. All of those people, um, every single one of those guys from Seven Ten Cab and the the Fisters and the. Um, um, which, you know, the Ford observers and, and the medics and all the Marsoc guys, everyone there was just um incredible story. I mean, I wish someday I could just get all their stories and, and write a book and tell their stories. Um, carefully balance that because I, I don't want to be seen as someone that's self-promoting either. Um, and I think the more more I talk, um, you know, there's a there's a maybe a perception that people do that. And I don't I don't ever want to be seen as that because 
You know, to me, it's it's about those guys. Send them all to me in the hazard ground. We'll tell those stories here. How's that sound? (laughs) Okay, let's go. Let's go back to what happened to you. So that RPG goes off, right? And Mm -hmm. the force of it knocks you back into what a mud hut? I mean, whatever it was that was nearby. Yeah, it blasted me forward. So it hit behind me, and it blasted me. Left dart at a dartboard. I went head first into this wall. Um, landed on top of Ben. Did you get knocked out? Yeah. Okay. When you come to, what's the first thing you see in here? What um, are you doing? Yeah, I came to pretty quick, um, and and I came to hearing Jeff screaming for for Kelly, screaming medic, medic, uh, medic. We need a medic. Um, and I didn't know the situation of anyone else. I'm just coming to. Um, I can't hear. Um, I still can't. You know, I, I didn't. I couldn't hear for a while. Everything was just blown out. Um, but my vision is just really blurry, and it's kind of going left and right. My vision. Then all of a sudden, it just snaps to. I'm awake. Um, there's still Taliban coming at us in the field. You know, it's happening all around. Um, and then I realize, like, I'm alive. So, um, you know, I have my arms, legs. Uh, my junk, you know, everything that, that you immediately check Most important, for, um, always most important, check the junk. We, we've learned that on the hazard <laughs> ground. It is the first thing a guy yeah. asks after something explodes on my nuts, okay? And that's totally fair. Um, <laughs> do you do any, like, battle damage assessment on yourself to see if you're bleeding or not? Yeah, yeah. So in in, in the audio, you, you couldn't hear it, but we're we're calling out. We're screaming out to Kellen. We're, um, you know, helping him triage, I guess, because we're all still, you know, facing outwards fighting in different directions and he's sort of behind us you know um calling out like so you know i i think at one point i screamed like i got shot on the back of my neck no big deal and i'm laying you know putting out bursts so um so i was able i ran my glove across my neck and uh it came back with metal shards all over it um and blood so i knew i i was bleeding back there um but i didn't i don't know like adrenaline i couldn't really feel any pain um other than I couldn't hear well, um, and uh, um, and I, I went back to what I said earlier. I was just thinking, like, I hope no one has to carry me out here. You know, I don't want to be that guy um, because, you know, now we have to already carry a, a couple other people out. Um, and, you know, there was no sign that the, the, the Taliban surrendering anytime soon, so we're going to have to fight our way out of there, um, which we did. Um, and... Uh, the other combat camera guy, John Pearl, wound up, you know, um, and he was Navy and the dog was Navy. So it's kind of a, a kind of a cool connection where he carried, you know, his wounded shipmate, you know, off the, off the battlefield. Although we, it wasn't like, like, like you would see on Hollywood. We weren't walking off the battlefield with smoke and looking cool, slow walking. We were fighting, <laughs> we were fighting all the way out. Right. Um, got back to the outpost, um, medevaced out the people that needed to go and got right back into the fight. We went straight back out there. So um, but we, as you're taking rounds from the Taliban after this and there's still firefight going on, how do you know when to put down your M4 and pick up your camera? Um, there was a lot of moments where I wished I had done that. Um, I was fighting and I would see something. I'd be like, man, that was that was cool. Um, but so I would see these glimpses of, um, you know, like Jeff Shepard at one point is just standing up on these sandbags, you know, just like screaming, like it was like a, a scene from Rambo, just laying down massive amounts of saw of, you know, medium um, machine gun fire and just, you know, 
just just laying waste to, to these, this this riverbed over here with these Taliban in it, and I didn't capture it. You know, I was thinking that is like the coolest video moment ever. Um, so I would see these things, I'd be like, oh yeah, camera. So kind of put down my M4 for a minute and then start taking photos. Um, but it was these things that I missed that really, and then I wished, man, you know, um, I should just keep my camera on, but it wasn't. I mean, there's there were 12 of us and like 150 of them. I, I couldn't really afford to not fight. Um, and I owed the people around me my best fight. So, um, yeah, but uh, so it was, it was a tough decision, but a few times I, I did pick the camera up and continue to do that. Um, there was one of the guys, uh, one of the scouts uh, was a guy named Willie Newland. And um, we laugh about it to this day, but there's this photograph I, I took and he's kind of in the ruins a little bit over for me. And the look on his face, he's looking at me like, what the fuck are you doing? You know, he's just got this look <laughs> of confusion and we laugh about it. Cause like, he, I was like, I'm laughing about his face. He's like, I was looking at you. I'm like, this is not time to take a photograph, dude. Fight, you know, yeah. which is what he's thinking. But he's not in my in my shoes. You know, he doesn't yeah. have that. He has his responsibility. I have mine. I mean, but um, I just imagine scanning with a camera like you would a sector of fire and you come across a Taliban with a gun shooting. And the only thing you're looking at is a camera to take a picture. And I'm wondering if the instinct is drop the camera, pick up the gun, stupid. Yeah, it is. It really is. It's an instinct you have to fight. Um, you you have to fight because there's also another job that I need to do there. And and some of those images, when Intel people look at it, they get key pieces of information. You know, there was a, a major IED making facility, um, you know, maybe 150 meters from where we were fighting that was exposed during this operation. You know, so those that ground frontline intel is so important um so um there is there is a an instinct that you know this is not the time to be taking photos um and maybe there's a perception from your team that like you know i don't know like you know this is you're not on a beach shooting you know family photos type thing pick up your gun stupid but I know there's also a need for that imagery. So, um, but it, but everything in me tells me, you know, fire the M4, fire the M4. The camera can wait, but, um, you know, I don't know. Can it really? Um, so back to the fight itself. You're also, you know, trying to get your wounded folks out of there. What else is going on at this point? Um, so we're, we're, we're pinned down. Um, we can't, we can't get a medevac. It's just too hot. No one, no one's willing to land. Um, we have some air support. Uh, we had, um, fire mission. We had some mortars, uh, nine or 10 mortars hung on our behalf, but they, none of them were hitting on target. Um, and, uh, and then we had, um, so we had some rotary. So we had some Spanish super Puma, uh, helicopter show up and, and, um, the 50 cal on the door lay down some good cover fire um and we wound up getting um some um coalition i think they were dutch or danish or something at 16s that came in low and pop players you know a show of force which is great i mean taliban will check off for a second but they're right back in the fight so it didn't was very wasn't really effective um and and then we had a um 
a uh, it was I don't know if it was a predator or a reef. I think it was a predator um, drone that came up with its you know hellfires and 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 it did some some pretty good damage on our behalf. And and ultimately ultimately the the biggest firepower we had was a, a B1 that dropped um, two 500 pound GBUs and a 2,000 pound GBU. Yeah, that helps. So yeah, yeah. So that was very very helpful. Um, and uh, and it was crazy because we didn't you know a, a lot of missions we had a JTAC a TAC P guy right there with us. This mission we had um, um, Dwayne Sparks was a was was an Army Forward observer, um, and he was he was he was doing his best, but he was talking on the on the comms on the radio back to a uh, a JTAC at, at a FOB that was then directing the cast from you know somewhere else. So it was it was um, it wasn't optimal, but it was um, we were able to get some very much needed close air support. And when it comes to I guess pride for being in the Air Force. I have a lot of pride of being an American, but the Air Force sometimes I, I, I didn't feel the most pride about as a service branch. But when it comes to close air support, um, man, it's great. You you see that you know there's a you hear there's a B one up there, and you don't see it, but then you know you 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 know like 30 seconds this bomb's on target, and you hear the whistle, and then all of a sudden you know boom, what would have taken us you know two days to accomplish this bomb does in seconds. Um, it's just overwhelming power um, that comes from the sky, and it's it's a beautiful thing. So, um, yeah, that's my my hat nod to the Air that Force. Angels on your shoulders, right? Yeah, absolutely. All right, so the fight ends. Uh, eleven guys there. All eleven get out alive. Some people are wounded, but everybody gets home alive. Uh, to that end, you know, what are you thinking when this whole thing ends, and what are you feeling? So. It ended as much as we got back to the combat outpost to medevac a few people. And But if we would have retreated off that battlefield, well, we did momentarily to evac our wounded. But if we would have, would have not gone back out, um, then that would be a massive moral victory for, for the Taliban. And it would have put us back, you know, a long ways in, in everything we were doing in this valley. Um, um, and not just the army but but marsoc and the oda there was a lot of investment in this valley and changing the course of of the power base in this valley so we couldn't lose the fight it was um even even at 150 to 12 you know we had we had to win the fight so we got back to the outpost we got um these guys medevac i was in the aid station with kellen who was patching up my neck when everybody went back out um i come out and uh and like all the americans are gone they're 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 in some on foot some on trucks but they're on their way back out to the fight and the ana um the afghan national army they're still in the outpost um so they drive these non-armored uh green ranger trucks that you know sometimes have like a machine gun mounted in the back or whatever but they're they're getting ready to go out so i jump in the back of the truck with the ana um and we make it out the gate. We turn left. We're headed. We're headed up towards where the fight is. And then the A and A turn around and go back. And I was pissed. Um, none of them understood me. The Terp wasn't with us because you know I've just jumped in the truck with them. But I'm screaming at them. Um, and they go back. But you know because they didn't have armor on their trucks, they just I, I don't know. I don't really know what they did, honestly. But they went back. So I was really pissed because um, these these other guys are are out there back in the fight. And now I'm back at the the outpost. So I go up on um, on on the wall, and uh, and I find John Pearl up there on a um, on a uh, I think he was on like a 
I think he was on a 50 caliber Mark. I don't remember. He was on one of the heavy weapons and there's an M82, you know, there at 50 cal lay next to him. So, so I get on that um, and we're just trying to pick out targets out there. Um, so kind of support it from, from inside the wire, if you will. So it was a really frustrating thing because, um, you know, you, you, des- you desperately want to be back out there. Um, and I, had I not gone into that aid station to get patched up, you know, I wouldn't, I would have, I would have been right back out there, but sure. as it were, I'm stuck, you know, and the ANA canceled their part of the mission. I was really, really mad at them about it, but um, I mean, it's their, their country. I wanted them to get out there and get in a fight with us. Um, but uh, anyway, it was what it was. So uh, the, the fight didn't really end um, in, my part of the fight ended in that story and that day, but um, all those guys I've been talking about, they were still out there in the fight for another couple hours. All right. So this is in 2011. You don't retire until 2017 as well. Um, your bronze star for valor isn't awarded until 2017. What was the holdup? Yeah. What took so long? Um, so there was a, a lot of the guys were put in for, Bronze Stars with Valors, Silver Stars, these different awards. Um, I don't know. So the, the Army takes care of the Army. The um, Marines take care of the Marines. My awards, because I'm working for the Italians on paper, I, they they got lost. I mean, everything's just like I left I left there without, a, without anything. Um, so I, I don't really know what happened. I don't know when the paperwork left. Um, that unit, then their higher headquarters is Task Force Freighter, which is under U.S. Forces Afghanistan, um, and then it goes up to Big Army and stuff. Mine then go through the Italian Army to NATO, um, to ISAF, in a, in a different route. Um, so I couldn't track it. I don't. I don't. I honestly don't know where it went. Um, but um, then it took me gathering, you know, the witness statements from from the guys and um, trying to find another avenue, which took me a long time. Um, so the, I, the air wing I went back to in England, they they didn't feel it was their prerogative to sim- submit me for an award that happened in Afghanistan. And they had witness statements, but they didn't really have the, the ground knowledge. You know, the, you know, the commanders there should be submitting me for this. So it was just a lot of politics. Um, and um, at my last assignment, the 89th Airlift Wing, which is, the, the unit that flies Air Force One and, and all the blue and white and stuff out of Andrews. I had a commander there um, who was very, very compassionate about, um, you know, the, me and my story. And he, um, I don't honestly, I don't even know what avenue he found to, to get the medals approved, but I think it came from General Goldfield. I think it came from the chief of staff. Um, um, so it was it was a very unorthodox way to have right. that metal pushed. What um, were you thinking and feeling when it's finally given to you? Well, I'd given up on the whole idea. Uh, I just thought, you know, um, it wasn't about medals to begin with. Um, so, uh, and at that time, I um, so I I was at at like the one of the I think the coolest non combat mission in the DoD it was is the diplomacy mission, you know, because. Hopefully diplomacy works and you don't need combat. So everything the blue and white at Andrews were doing at the time, it was ferrying around Secretary Kerry and, and like people doing the diplomacy mission. And if they do their jobs, then then we don't have to fight. So I loved being a part of that. But at the same time, um, uh, years of sort of un, unchecked moral injury and stuff were building up. And I 
uh, I had a, a couple of suicide attempts and, and wound up um, institutionalized for post-traumatic stress disorder and stuff. So um, obviously you can't be hanging around close proximity to Obama and stuff when you, when you have PTSD. So I kind of lost my job, but my commander never gave up on me as a person. And he, um, he was really in my corner. So, um, I felt like when I got that medal, um, some kind of, in, in some kind of weird way, like I said, medals aren't important, but I felt like justice, like I felt like, um, cause for years since 12, 2012 until then, I got really bitter towards the Air Force. I felt sure. like the Air Force just didn't get it. They don't understand. I felt like most airmen don't understand what's going on in the front line, you know, and I had uh, at an Air Force ball one year, this 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 captain come up to me and, um, and I'm, not, I'm sorry if I sound like I'm dealing with the Air Force. It's just a lack of understanding of the front line. Mm-hmm. But I had this, this captain come up and he, you know, he's dang, you know, messing with my purple heart on my mess dress and I knock his hand away. And he's like, that is so cool. And I'm like, it's fucking cool. I'm thinking, I'm thinking all sorts of horrible things, but I got my military bearing and, uh, and, and the captain and I obviously did have beers together. But, um, but I was just thinking like, how unaware is this person of like the sacrifice these soldiers and, and Marines and frontline people are making that you're going to call a purple heart cool. There's nothing cool about it. No, it's, um, it's like the one award I'm glad I never got. Like I, I never wanted that one. Yeah. To people, yeah. who, to people who have it, it it's, and, and this will transition well. To people who have it, um, it's a constant reminder of not only physical scars, but emotional ones as well. Yeah. And there's a guilt with it because you're alive and other people aren't. You know, there's two ways to get a purple heart, dead or wounded. And I, I don't know. I don't feel like I rate the same medal as the people who gave everything. Because, I, I, yeah, I shed some blood, but, I, you know, I'm alive. <laughs> So there's guilt with it, too. Well, tell me about some of the struggles that you had, um, including a, a suicide attempt that you now speak about that you didn't before. So the the toughest thing for me is um, is I, I, I believe wholeheartedly that what we were doing in, in Afghanistan and other places was helping helping the 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 most precious you know resources in the world which is children women and children that are brutally oppressed and abused and and we're we're helping to give them a better life by ridding this world of monsters you know i believe the people we killed were evil they were evil evil men doing horrible things to um to 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 people they had power over so i wholeheartedly believe we were Rating the planet of monsters, but the irony in that is the more and more I personally read the world of monsters, I was becoming one myself unknowingly. And it would manifest itself at home um, a few times at work. I got in some bar fights and some things like that that weren't really becoming of, of, of being in the military or of my rank. But um, um, fortunately, I wasn't punished for any of that. But uh, at home, you know, I would, I was, I was just a. Uh, not that I didn't love my wife and children, but I was, I was unable to portray love in my heart. I loved them all w- with everything I was, but I, I had so, so much rage and anger that simple things that like teenage girls wanting, you know, if they have a cell phone but they want the newest iPhone, to me would set me into rage because I would think about these kids that, you know, 
or, or like, you know, 12 years old being married off to a man in his forties against their will and all these horrible things that I saw. Um, so I would, I would, I was arguing with my wife all the time. I was, you know, um, emotionally and, 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 and verbally abusive to all of my children. Um, and I was just an ugly person. And I would tell myself before I left work every day, like not today, no matter what, any of them say, I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to be, I'm going to show nothing but love. But every day, although I would tell myself that in the whole ride home, I would listen to the most relaxing type music and get my head right. And then something would set me off. And it was like every day. So I started thinking, you know, if I just wasn't here, they would get, I'm still at the duty. They would get, you know, 400,000. I mean, I had some other life insurance and, and they could be happy, you know, that I was the one thing dragging everyone down. I felt like, um, so I just made a decision that um, that I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, and I, I I tried to to do it other ways, but I was unable to shed the rage, um, and I wasn't willing to get help yet at that time. You know, professional help. I mean, like psychiatric help. So um, so I just wanted to um, just wanted to leave, and uh, and then I, I I attempted one one time, and then a couple years later, I really decided, and I was in. Uh, um, outside Fort Belvoir in, in Virginia with a 45 revolver. Um, and, uh, and it was in that moment when I started thinking that this isn't going to end my pain. It's just going to amplify it and pass it on to the people that I'm doing this because I'm, I want to protect, you know? So that's, there was like, irony is not a strong enough word, but there was, um, there was just something disgusting that I came to on my own that like, this is not going to help them. This is going to destroy them. Well, it's a twist in reality. Yeah. Yeah. And luckily I was able to come to that on my own and, and and, yeah, check myself in the emergency room and and started getting help. But um, I knew if I would have shot myself, it's an easy out for me, but everyone around me who I claim to love, you know, and want to help now I've just destroyed and beyond them people like, you know, friends and, and unit. I mean, some people say that's cliche, but no, like if somebody dies, it destroys units. It destroys, you know, pretty much everything. And I wasn't, wasn't going to put my pain on to all these other people. So, um, yeah, so I did the hard thing, lost my security clearance. And you know, I think I did anyway, I got pulled out of my job. Um, pretty much lost everything that I had come to love as far as my identity. But, um, but I, you know, I'm alive, and I turn the corner, and I'm actually feel like I'm a better person now because of it. So, um, you do a lot of public speaking now about your experience. What do you tell people? Like, encapsulate some of the messaging. Um, so th- there's a uh, a lot of the public speaking I've been doing is related to suicides in the military. Um, and um, the, I'm not really sure what's driving this. It, you know, there's obviously a big problem in the veteran community as well. But active duty, there's a big problem with suicides. And um, I feel like if I share these deep personal suicide stories and my reasons for not doing it, um, I, I hope to reach people and, and people who are serving still who are concerned about their job and their security clearance and their families and things like that. So may not, and it's not just suicide. I mean, you know, rape victims, all sorts of people who are carrying trauma, combat or otherwise, um, that are not getting professional help. I hope in some way they see me and um, they recognize that um, to me, how, how hard that is to do. Uh, you know, when I talk about bravery on the battlefield, I like to talk about other people because I don't see myself as that. But 
I believe I'm brave to speak about suicide because it kills me. Like <laughs> after this call today, it'll take me days to get over over this. You know, that's just how much you put into it. Sure. But I hope that that sacrifice touches people and 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 prompts them to get help before before it's too late. So that's that's the reason I, I speak. Well, Kevin, look, the message in and of itself is pure, and it certainly is one that uh, resonates well with our audience uh, and one that can't be said enough to that end. Um, you know, given all you've went through in your career, the ups and the downs, and uh, originally why you signed up to where you ended up, um, do you look at your career in a certain way? I don't want to ask if you do anything different because it doesn't sound like you would, but I, I guess – how does your career sort of fit what you wanted it to be? Um, so if I could design the perfect career, you know, when you think about benefits and leadership and the, the opportunities officers have to go to these advanced degrees in these schools and stuff, I definitely would have commissioned if I think about it from that lens, the opportunities were there at a couple different intersections in my career, but I don't begrudge the path I took because I know, you know, I'm sitting here talking to you and there's all these listeners that have now heard about Kellen and, and Jeff and Ben and, and William Newland and all these people, you know, that, that if I would have went a different route, you know, I may have not had the ability to do that. So I, I feel like, all service is is just that it's serving it's serving your community it's serving your country it's serving the alliance it's serving the world really i believe what america does impacts the world and it's an it's a noble mission so i think service almost like in the roots of you know you know the samurai or whatever it, it is it's serving your community it's serving the people it's serving the greater good and the the best way i could have served is the way i did serve um the best the best me, the best Kevin could have given to his country and to the Air Force and to the, his his brothers and sisters across all the branches, I believe, was to tell their story. Because I'm not that guy that was meant to be a Ranger or a Green Beret or something. I'm five foot six, um, although I was always in great shape, but I'm not, you know, that big buff, you know, that guy. Um, so what do I have to offer? I think I my the biggest thing I have to offer is to tell other people's stories of bravery and heroism. Um, so I really feel like the path I took was the perfect path for me. And it was, and I was able to impact other people along the way, which to me, there's nothing more, more noble and nothing more service than that. Perfectly said, Kevin, I want to thank you for being so open and honest and courageous to tell uh, the darkest parts of your story as well as the bravest parts. And certainly what you have shared with our audience, uh, I, I know will leave a lasting impact on certain people, but thank you for all of your time. And certainly thank you for being part of the hazard ground. Thank you. You've been listening to the hazard ground podcast hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
Cox can help make your home smarter and your life easier. Now you can use your Contour Voice Remote to connect to your home life cameras so you can view them right on your TV screen using simple voice commands. That makes it easy to keep tabs on what's happening around your home right from your couch. Need to keep an eye on the kids when they're playing outside? Just say, show me my backyard camera into your Cox Voice Remote and watch them while you're in the house. And if you're waiting for a delivery and want to make sure it's there on time, no problem. Just say, show me driveway camera to check on it with your Home Life HD cameras on the TV screen while you go about your day. When you live in a home powered by Cox Internet, you can stay connected to what matters and let Cox take care of the rest. To learn more about all the benefits of your connected home, visit cox.com slash thisishome today. When it comes to working at GEICO, our best advocates are our employees, like Maxine. But since she's so focused on growing her career, we hired an actor to read her story. At GEICO, I love mentoring the new associates to help them make this a career and not just a job. And with new opportunities and job stability, GEICO has been helping people grow their careers for over 75 years. The only downside, she still hasn't met the gecko. Where are you, fella? Ready to start your career, Fredericksburg? We're hiring claim sales and service agents. Apply online today at geico.job slash Fredericksburg.